0: Now, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, we're going to be in the second half of Acts 17 this morning. Uh, If you remember, we have been slowly but surely working our way through the book of Acts since pretty much the beginning of the year. And what we've been seeing is the church is so much more than merely a meeting you go to. It's a community that you very much belong to with a very specific mission to take the good news about Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Now, the passage we're going to be dipping into this morning, I think, is incredibly helpful when it comes to the whole question of how to go about sharing the good news about Jesus with people who have no kind of Christian background whatsoever which I think it's pretty fair to say would be the vast majority of the people around us. So I just want us to walk through the passage. I'm going to make a few comments as we go before wrapping it all up by drawing out five lessons for us today. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Acts uh, chapter 17 verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, them being his friends Silas and Timothy, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So right away, We see that Paul doesn't just view the gospel, doesn't just view the good news about Jesus as a private thing that merely provides personal peace, comfort, and help. No, he very much believed that the gospel should be brought right into the middle of the public square. Now, back then, the public square wasn't just where you went to do your shopping. It was very much the cultural center. In those days, you didn't have newspapers, the internet didn't exist, so you'd go physically to the public square to hear all the latest news. It was also the place where businesses and investors would hang out, meet one another, and do their deals. So it was the financial commercial centre. It was a place where artists would gather to perform. It was where the political ideas of the day were debated, thrashed out, and presented. It was also where all the latest philosophical trends were discussed and debated. Now, you have to remember that Paul was in Athens, and Athens and Rome were the two chief cultural centers of that day. That's to say, the ideas that were forged and shaped and accepted there tended to flow out and set the course of how everyone else in all of that society lived and thought for themselves. And Paul isn't the least bit intimidated by this environment. He plunges right in. He also, verse 18, had a debate there with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Now, because of where we stand in history, we're perhaps in a position to see the irony of what happens here. The word babbler, it was a pretty derogatory term. It was a specific reference to a bird that picks up seeds and then spits them back out without digesting them properly. If you like uh, babblers were people who kind of rambled on for hours about ideas they picked up from other people without really understanding them for themselves. In other words, the, the cultural elites just laughed and mocked at Paul. The irony is that within 250 years or so, Christianity swept that society and completely changed the dominant cultural ideas. And so people looked at Christianity at that point and said, this is completely and utterly ridiculous. I mean, what intelligent person in their right mind would believe this? Yet within a couple of centuries, pretty much all intelligent people believe this. Now, there's a whole lot of discussion and debate about how that actually happened. But the basic idea is that every culture has something of a soft underbelly. Every culture has its own weaknesses. You see, everyone has problems. Uh, Everyone has aspirations and dreams. Uh, Everyone has issues they're grappling with in their lives. And the dominant cultural ideas try to answer or solve those things. But very often, cultures can't do that very well. And Christianity came along and answered some of those aspirations and dealt with some of those problems better than the dominant cultural ideas of the day. And so over time, things began to change. I think there's a little hint of this here in this text where it says that Paul debated specifically with the Stoics and the Epicureans. Anyone interested to know a bit more about those two groups of people? Yeah, Irene is, so uh, for Irene's sake, and because you asked, uh, I'm going to tell you a bit more about those two groups. First of all, the Stoics. Uh, The Stoics uh, believed in moral absolutes, uh, and they believed that the whole meaning of life was to be good and virtuous and noble and courageous, and so when suffering came along, you you needed to detach yourself from it all. You needed to put on a brave face. You needed to harden yourself. You, You certainly didn't weep, You you didn't break down. You didn't grieve. You you didn't let anyone see any sign of weakness. You didn't allow anyone to see that you were struggling in any way. You did what it took to not let life get to you because the whole meaning of life for them was to be a strong person or at least to hide behind a mask that suggested that everything was fine in your life. But when faced with the reality of suffering and pain and grief and trouble. This whole approach didn't really work for most people. And so when Christianity came along with a message of hope and resurrection and eternal life, that was considerably more comforting and helpful to people who are suffering. So the fact that Christians suffered and died so well ended up over time having huge cultural impact that was the Stoics. Then you have the Epicureans. They basically believed that when you died, that was it. The Epicurean said the meaning of life is therefore to squeeze as much happiness out of this life as you possibly can. It's to live your life the way you want to. You need to be free. You should live for pleasure because this life is all that you have. And so they also talked a whole lot about sexual freedom. Now, Why do you think that the Christian view of sex, which on the surface was way more restrictive, ended up winning in that cultural context? I think it's because the idea that sex is something you do just to make yourself happy often ends up down the line leading to loneliness and insecurity. Whereas the seemingly more restrictive Christian view of sex leads to greater fulfillment in the long run. You know, I'm constantly hearing people nowadays saying that the Christian view of sex is so outdated. It's like you've got to get with a program. Things have changed. The church needs to keep up with public opinion. But to say that shows a real ignorance of history. Because Christianity was actually born into a culture like we have right now here in the UK. 2,000 years ago, we saw the very same situation. And back then, the Christians knew that part of their cultural power, one of the things that made their message fly was they saw right through the ethic that says, having sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, leads to true freedom and happiness. It didn't work then. Ultimately, it doesn't work today. So the Stoics believed in moral absolutes, but they were kind of cold at heart. The Epicureans said... Live any way you want, but that was empty and lonely. It's like every culture has its weak spots. Even when the cultural elites are sneering at Christianity, there are weaknesses. And we need to wake up to the fact that ultimately Christianity can speak right into the heart of culture at these places of weakness. Maybe you're thinking, well, what are our weaknesses then? What are some of the areas of weakness in our culture? Well, what do you reckon? What do you think of any? Shout them out. What are some of the weak spots in our culture? Any insight? Consumerism, absolutely. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. A, a couple of people do. Uh, can can everyone get a little more agreement there? Any other areas of weakness in our culture? Pride would definitely do people agree with that yeah, yeah, I think you're waking up to this okay you're warming up anyone else brave enough to to make a suggestion post truth absolutely i'd agree with that anyone else yeah, yeah, no. sorry individualism I think that's massive, absolutely massive other things we we say we want morality but we haven't really got any basis for saying what's right or wrong because uh, no one has any right to say what's right or wrong outside the kind of consensus of what everyone should believe. And we say we want community, but at the same time, we kind of destroy it because we say that everyone has to have individual freedom. It's like that the rights of the individual trump everything, which makes us self-centered, which down the line leads to huge loneliness. I think we have a lot of the same problems, actually, because we still have Stoics and Epicureans today, they just aren't called those things. Like in Paul's day, they can't fulfill the deepest longings of the human heart. so that's what Paul's mainly dealing with here in this passage, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Reading Reading on the story in verse 18, other people piped up and said, well, look, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. And then they took him to the high council of the day, the Areopagus. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that All the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. And so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. And by the way, uh, this whole sermon takes only two minutes for us to read but speeches at the Areopagus were never known for their brevity. So each sentence here probably represents at least 20 minutes of discourse. In other words, you're just getting the skeleton, the bare bones, the outline. This is what Paul says. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This was kind of their just in case God, just in case the real God didn't get covered in the thousands of other shrines and statues to the gods that they worshipped, they wanted to cover their bases. What's more, all around their temples, there were images of struggle, kind of representing their struggle to figure life out, to make life work. And Paul saw in all of this their struggle for God. And so he says, this God whom you worship without knowing, is actually the one that I'm telling you about. It's like, I can see you're struggling. Uh, I can see that you think deep down there is still something more. And the reason you're struggling is because, haha, there is something more. There is another God. Let me tell you about him. In other words, he started with their questions. I think that's significantly different to how he engaged with God-fearing Jews. In, earlier on in the chapter, in verse 2, we read that Paul went into the synagogue. He reasoned with the people there from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. But here in Athens, they don't accept the authority of the Scriptures. So he starts with their questions Now watch how he does it. Verse 24, he says, He is the God who made the whole world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. You see how he's pointing out logical problems with their approach to God. He's asking them, does it make sense that the God who created everything could in some way be contained just in a temple, or would you need to provide for him in some way? Verse 26, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now Paul's actually doing two things here. First of all, he's saying, look, the real God is not some kind of tribal deity who has jurisdiction just over a limited sphere or area. Like back then, they, they had the God of the sea, they had the God of agriculture, the, the God of good sex. We'll say, no, 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 the real God is the creator of the whole earth. He's Lord over everything. Second thing he's saying is that the greatest pursuit in all of life is actually to know this God. You see, Greek and Roman gods were always a means to some other thing, So you worshipped and served them because they provided something else that you wanted more. For example, Artemis was the goddess of prosperity and money. So if you wanted that, you went to her temple and made offerings to her. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. So if you wanted to have a bit more wisdom, you worshipped her. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex and beauty, fertility. Cloacena was the goddess of the sewer systems. Not sure quite how you worshipped her, or for that matter, how you made offerings to her. Uh, But the thing to remember is that all of these gods were a means to something else, a means to something more, prosperity, money, power, sex, smoother bowel movements, whatever was kind of important to you at that point in your life. However, Paul's saying here that the real God is so glorious, is so transcendent, that just knowing him is reward enough. And so it's not to be sought as a means for anything else. And he's telling them they already have this kind of hunch that this is true. The fact they have this altar to an unknown God shows they know there is something more out there. And the good news is that even though God is so glorious, so transcendent, he's actually not far from any one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. Now, that was a quote, but not a quote from the scriptures. It's from a song written about Zeus in 600 BC. Uh, And then Paul quotes from a poem called Phenomena, written by a Stoic poet in 330 BC. He goes on, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. It's like Paul is so well-versed in their culture, he can use their own literature, he can use their own ideas and words to show that they've already stumbled onto truths, that they're asking some of the right questions. Verse 29, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. In other words, if God is the creator of everything, You are foolish to think you can reduce him to something that you can hold in your own hands. And then at last, he finally gets into the gospel. Verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, which just means God stayed uninvolved, leaving them to their erroneous, idolatrous ideas. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. I don't know what you think, but I think there's real genius in Paul's whole approach here. And so very quickly, just to wrap this up, I want to highlight five things that I think we can do today in our context to follow Paul's example. Here's the first thing. Be provoked by the idolatry. Be provoked by the idolatry that's all around us. As we've seen, when Paul walked around Athens and saw the impressive structures in the city, it didn't intimidate him, nor did it seduce him. It provoked him. It's like the idolatry that he saw in Athens broke his heart, but he didn't run away from it in fear or hatred, nor did he draw close to it with a desire to be, in some way, accepted by it. He sought to engage people in order to show them the message of the one true God. Now here's my question to you. When you see idolatrous structures in our own society, what's your reaction? A guy called Tim Keller says you can look at whatever buildings in your own city are the biggest that will usually give you an indication of what your city's idols are. So what are some of the biggest, most impressive buildings or structures in Birmingham? Just shout them out. What what springs to mind? The Ball Ring? Yep. BT Tower? Can I hear something else? Football grounds? Yep. Cricket grounds? Yeah, don't miss out cricket. Bit of idolatry there as well as I'll be enjoying later on today. Uh, anything else? The university, the university yeah. The li- yeah, the library. Hospitals. Now you think about that. What does that perhaps reveal about the idols in our city? These buildings, these structures, that the, the grandest, the most impressive, where the most money goes, what does that reveal... Or highlight about the idols in our city, do you think? Status, being the biggest, the best, most impressive. Health, learning, consumerism, which I said earlier. Anything <laughs> else? The lack of the lack of religion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, when you see those things, what's your dominant reaction? Now, is that going to be impressed, and to kind of look at something like the library and think, well, that's pretty impressive, or the university and think, well, I'm proud of that, or new hospital, yeah, I'm thrilled we're in this city with that. Is that going to be impressed, but it also grieve you that more glory is perhaps given to some of those things than to God himself. When you Watch things like Glastonbury or the Olympics or the Oscars, what emotions do you feel? Is it kind of admiration? Is it kind of awe? Is it worship? Is it revulsion? Or is it compassion and heartbreak? You see, if you're not provoked in some way by the idolatry, then maybe, just maybe, you're a little too at home in the world. You may be a little too comfortable in the culture around you. Maybe you want just what everyone else wants. Maybe their idols are becoming your idols. But on the other hand, if you're one of the ones who kind of see all those things and you just get fuming and angry and say, well, to hell with the world, then you don't really get the gospel either. Listen, in Paul we see a picture of who we need to be. Paul was provoked by the idolatry, but he didn't run from the people of Athens. He ran towards them in compassion. So I think we are to be people who are deeply aware of our culture, out to dialogue intelligently with it, without being tainted by it, which means we need to get to know our culture. We've got to pay attention to it. Johnny was brilliant at that. Uh, at the weekend away, have a listen to his talk if you didn't hear that, and says how to go about doing that. I think the only way... Paul was upset by the idolatry in Athens was because he spent some time getting to know that culture. You know, I think a lot of us, we're we're upset, we're frustrated, we're a little confused about where our culture's heading, but we're not actually listening to what people are saying around us. I suggest we've got to find ways to stay actively engaged in our city if we're going to stand any chance of reaching the people around us. Paul's whole presentation of the gospel in this passage reveals he'd put in the time and the effort to actually listen to people and understand what they thought. Now that's not enough to convince you. Trump card, consider Jesus. And how did he respond to the idolatry in your life? Did he run from it? Quite the opposite. He ran straight to us. He took time to show us the futility of our idolatry. He demonstrated that he was the answer to all of our deepest longings. That's the first thing. Be provoked by the idolatry in our city. Secondly, find points of agreement with people. I'm not going to spend long on this, but think the heart of humankind is incurably religious. You see, God created us to worship and to know him. It's like this primary drive in us, like hunger for food or thirst for water. There's this drive to worship something, ultimately God. Now, of course, because of sin, that desire to worship God has been corrupted. But I think the remnants of it are still there. Writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says that God has placed eternity in In our hearts, which kind of means that all of us ask ultimate questions, all of us search for meaning, all of us put ultimate value on certain things that we live for. That searching kind of takes place in everyone, needs to be identified and affirmed wherever it can. It's what Paul does in this passage. He meets people where they're at, affirms what's good, and then points them to something better. Now, again, a bit of audience participation here. It's the summer trying to draw you out a bit. How do you think we can actually do that? Can you think of examples of how we could identify and affirm the positive in people that then is the springboard to speaking of Jesus? Let me give you a, a few kind of errors, and I'll, I'm after some help here. If, if you're chatting with someone who maybe professed to be an atheist, how can you affirm something good in them uh, that maybe points to something deeper as a search for God? How, how do you do that with an atheist? Any ideas? Talk about love yeah any other ideas Yeah, absolutely It's good to ask questions maybe admire their passion for truth, their consistency to their position um, How about someone uh, of a, a different belief system whether uh, let's say someone who's a Muslim how do you affirm what's good in their belief system yeah so uh, actually that there are more bridges often to, to Muslims than people who are completely secular in our society any other ways you, you could affirm with them devotion. their devotion yeah admirable anything else that God's the creator so all these kind of bridges we can go across. How about someone who's a, a kind of liberal activist who maybe holds positions very different to your own? What what would you affirm with them? Any ideas? Passion for justice? Compassion? A desire to see brokenness in the world mended and healed? Then we need to look for these kind of touchstones and affirm what's good rather than just kind of bombard people with what we believe. You see, actually all of these things, they are remnants of who we're made to be in relationship with God, and we should honor those things and help people see ultimately where they come from. That's the second thing. Thirdly, expose the insufficiency of false ideas or false answers. Before you present Jesus as the answer to everything, Sometimes you just need to show people that their current answers aren't working for them, that people have adopted a way of thinking, a philosophy that may work for them in the short run but won't hold up to scrutiny in the long run. A guy called Francis Schaeffer, he called that blowing the roof off the current house so they'll seek shelter somewhere else. Now, perhaps you say, well, I just don't know as much as the Apostle Paul did, so how do I do that? What should I do? Well, two suggestions. Number one, study. Study hard. I mean, if you genuinely love someone, won't you do everything you can to figure out how to communicate something important to them? For example, I don't know sign language because, let's face it, it's pretty hard to learn, and no one close to me is deaf. But I can guarantee you, if one of my close family members was deaf and that sign language is the only way I could communicate effectively with them, I'd put in the effort and learn sign language. You see, if you care for people and you believe the gospel is true, won't you figure out every possible way to communicate it to them better? Study. And secondly, we don't know what else to do, just ask questions. Well, that's what Jesus did. It's not that he didn't know what else to do. He did know what to do, but he asked questions. I don't know if you saw the... Facebook post by Rich O'Carroll this week, He, he kind of, I don't know if he worked out himself or read it somewhere, but he said that in the Gospels, Jesus asked about 307 questions and answered about eight. Asking questions is a great way of exposing the insufficiency of the false answers that people are living with. That's the third thing. Fourthly, proclaim the greatness of God. One of the chief characteristics of all false religions is a shrunk down view of God. It's like God gets reduced to a size that we can easily explain and manipulate or use to get something else we want, whether that's prosperity or power or whatever. But the real God is so large and so huge and so infinite and so wise that often he's unexplainable. And sometimes that's frustrating to me. It leaves me with answers that I can't find. It leaves me with questions I can't answer. I just want to be able to explain everything, understand everything. But if God really is infinite, then of course there are going to be things about him and the way he does things that I can't understand. It will just blow my mind. As one i put it. If God was small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I celebrate the fact there are things about God that I don't know and don't understand. But you know that deep down. Isn't there something inside of you that tells you that that's true? Isn't that the unknown God that deep down you're searching for? Proclaim the greatness of God. Then, fifthly and finally, drive towards the resurrection. This is where Paul gets to here in this passage. In fact, it's where he's always headed. It's where the greatness of God is most tangibly on display. See, the gospel is fundamentally an announcement, not an explanation, Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh, sent here to save us. Key question is, is Jesus who he says he is? And if true, the resurrection proves that he is. Listen, the most important question that Jesus ever asked or that you'll ever consider is his question, who do you say that I am? Religion, philosophy, they ask who is right the gospel says, who is Jesus? Religion and philosophy, they ask, well, what is true? The gospel says, what happened in the death and resurrection? Work that out, then you'll know the truth. Religion and philosophy, they ask, what does God want from us? The gospel says, look at what God has done for us. Religion and philosophy, they ask, well, what kind of sacrifice do I have to make to gain God's acceptance? The gospel says, look at the sacrifice that God has made on our behalf. Christianity doesn't come to us by way of explanation, but revelation. Not, is it a better explanation, but ultimately, is Jesus who he says he is? So, we don't know what else to do, what else to say to people, present the claims of Jesus, and ask, who do you say that he is? That's what Paul did. Just to wrap this up, let's look at the response to his message. Verse 32, when people heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So three reactions. Some laughed at him. Some wanted to think about this a bit more. Some joined him and believed. I think we can expect to see all of those responses. By the way, I just notice the order of that last one. Not believed and joined him, but joined him and eventually believed. I think in the kind of culture we live in today, that is often the win. Getting someone to join you at an is faith reasonable event, or on a Sunday morning like this, or reading the Bible with you it's very unusual for someone to get saved there and then on the spot. Most people become Christians at the end of a process, a journey that can take a very long time. So why don't you just stop, think, reflect for a moment. Are there people in your life right now that you're investing in on their journey towards God? Are there people intentionally, actively you're investing in on their journey towards God? Maybe there aren't, maybe there aren't. But who do you know who perhaps is open to exploring faith? Do you know anyone like that? And what can you do to invest more in those relationships? I want you to reflect on that. Because here we are in this city, surrounded by idolatry, shrines to other gods everywhere. Here's my question. Are you provoked like Paul by the idols? Are you seeing this city through gospel eyes? Are you moved by compassion to the point you have to stand up and say something? Listen, we're to love people too much to leave the city. We're also to love them too much to leave them in their idolatry. My prayer is that we'd be provoked more and more and more to speak up for God's glory and their salvation.